All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made known to us your will, that you have revealed this to us so that we might have an understanding of who you are and that we might have eternal life. Father, we thank you for all that you have revealed to us and that the more we study, the more we learn, the more we read, the more we understand that we know just a small amount of that which you have revealed to us. So, Father, now as we take time to submit to the teaching of your word and to your revelation, may you continue to open our eyes to the truth that we may understand it, that God the Holy Spirit will put it together with that which we've already learned, that we may continue to advance towards spiritual maturity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, which we came close to finishing last week. And we will continue to look at the end of verse 7 and on into verses 8 and nine, I hope, this morning, as we focus on the superabundant wealth of his grace. Just as we read through this section, you ought to be so impressed with how much God has provided for us and how much he has given us. As we talk about grace, there's so many misunderstandings of grace there's so many people who slip works into grace. I'll never forget a time, uh, some 20-plus years ago now, uh, my mother had had a series of strokes, and on uh, several times, especially on the weekend when they didn't have help, I would be going over there to help my dad. And I was talking to a friend, and I said, well, they asked, what, do you, what have you been doing? And I said, well, I had to go over and help my dad with my mother. And this person was Roman Catholic and said, you're certainly earning a lot of grace. And that just jarred me because we never, ever think of earning and working for grace. That's such a juxtaposition of contradictory ideas that grace means unearned favor, undeserved merit, the goodness of God towards us, even when we least deserve it. It is God's manifestation of God's great love. As I quote the verses at the beginning in Romans 5, 5, 8, we're told that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, when we're in a state of spiritual death, when we're in a state of being obnoxious and hostile to everything that God stands for, when we are in a state of arrogance, 
God loved us in this way that he sent his only begotten son. That's John 3.16. He sent his son to die on the cross as our substitute. And as we have been studying here in Ephesians 1.7, it is when he is at the cross, on the cross, that he pays the penalty for sin. He pays the penalty for sin. We have to think of this in terms of the historical the historical manifestation of sin in the human race, that God created Adam and Eve absolutely perfect. They were righteous. They were sinless. There was nothing whatsoever flawed in them. And they had just one test, and that was to obey God, to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said there was a penalty that in the day that they ate it, which means at that time, at that instant, they would die. Now, they didn't die physically. Adam didn't die for 930 years. But they died spiritually. Death in Scripture has to do with a separation. And so they are separated from God because of their sin, and something in them no longer functioned. They lost that, and that was what we call the human spirit, which is the ability of our immaterial soul to have a relationship, to have fellowship, to enjoy God, and to have harmony and fellowship with God. And so when that spiritual death occurred, that capacity, that capability was gone, and they became spiritually dead. Thus, there uh, that that was that penalty had to be taken care of. So God had established this penalty for sin, a legal penalty that had to be paid for. Two other things have to happen when somebody uh, is spiritually dead. They have to not only that 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 personal experience of their spiritual death, their individual separation from God, has to be taken care of. They have to move from death to life. Second thing that has to happen is that they're unrighteous and they have to have righteousness, but they can't produce that righteousness on their own. Isaiah says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Therefore, we can't do anything to make ourselves righteous. The only way we can make ourselves righteous is following the example of Abraham. That is to believe God, to believe in Christ for us as church age believers and we then receive the imputation or the crediting of Christ's righteousness to us. So there's three problems we have. One is a legal penalty, which is spiritual death, the, the, the objective legal penalty. The second is our subjective personal spiritually, spiritual death. And the third is the lack of righteousness. Christ on the cross paid the penalty for everybody, believer, unbeliever, Christian, Muslim, Jew, atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, whatever. Every sin of every human being is objectively paid for at the cross. Spiritual death as a legal penalty in direction toward God is taken care of. That doesn't save anybody. What has to happen after that is each person has to make a decision whether to trust Christ or not, and at that instant of trusting Christ, then they are born again, they move from death to life, and they receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness so that they become righteous, not on the basis of anything they've done, but they receive 
the credit of Christ's righteousness on our account. And so what Ephesians 1.7 is focusing on is that after we are saved, we're in Christ. We are identified with him. That was one of the first things we talked about last time. And that we are in him, and in him we have, as a present reality, redemption, which means we are, the main idea in redemption is the focus is on being released from captivity, but it is never separated from the idea of having a payment made. That payment was made at the cross. So the first thing in terms of review is that we, we who are in him, um, this is what we have in him. We have redemption, and that is our position in Christ. That's just one of many, many things that happens at the instant of our salvation in, in relation to being in Christ. The technical term you may hear at a time or two is the term positional truth. That is our position. We need to learn to live in light of who we are in Christ. Now, some years ago, when Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Seminary, wrote his systematic theology, he listed and organized 32 things that happened to every person at the instant they trust in Christ. And that got a lot of play, and a lot of people used that. And then that was expanded upon by one person or another to 36 things, to 38 things, to 40 things. I've seen people list as many as 120 things. It got to be a little bit of an ego contest to see who could come up with more things. All they were doing was renumbering things. Because, for example, when, when Dr. Chafer listed his, he would list a category, and there may be eight subpoints, But it was only one thing that happened. For example, uh, the ministries of the Holy Spirit was one thing. So you were indwelt by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, regenerated by the Spirit, you're... Um, sealed by the Spirit, you get spiritual gifts, but that was all one thing. Well, somebody would come along, and they'd take those five things and break them out into five points, and now you have a few more. There were a number of categories like that, so I've never done anything on the things that happened at the instant you were saved because uh, I, didn't ju- I didn't want to get into that kind of a, a who can come up with more things, okay? There's a lot of them. And uh, they all happen at the instant that we were saved. Second thing we learned last time is redemption's the payment of a price to release someone from captivity. It's the payment of that that penalty. It's a payment of that price, and that relates to our being released from the penalty of sin. Now, a lot of times you hear pastors and evangelists say that if you're going to be saved and you want to get the gospel to people, they have to repent of their sin. Never once is sin the object of repentance other than somebody who's already saved. Okay, repentance in terms of salvation simply means to change your mind about how you're going to get saved, to change your mind about rejecting Christ, to accepting Christ, to trust in him. You don't have to emphasize repentance in giving the gospel because if you give the gospel clearly and they accept Christ, they have repented, whether you mention the word or not. uh, John, the writer of the gospel of John, never once mentions repentance in his entire gospel, and yet nearly every Christian, every pastor, every evangelist will say that the gospel that is written 
to teach people what they need to have eternal life, because that's how John expresses it in John 20, 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life through his name. So John is written for that. If he never mentions repentance, then repentance isn't a key element in what you're communicating. Another thing you're not communicating, you're not communicating that you need to invite Jesus into your life. You'll hear that a lot. In fact, that's become so normative today that most people misrepresent the gospel. I want to invite Jesus into my heart or invite Jesus into my life. Jesus was, doesn't want to be invited into your garbage dump of your life. Jesus isn't waiting for you to invite him into your life. Jesus has invited us to believe in him. There's a difference. He invites we accept that invitation by believing in him. We have to get it true. Don't use non-biblical vocabulary. If John thought it necessary to repeat the verb for believing over 96 times in the Gospels, the reason I always say that is because there's a couple of textual variants in there, so some people have 97, some at 96, but it's over 95, 96 times, then that's good enough. If it's good enough for the Holy Spirit, it's good enough for us. Just believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. A third thing we looked at is this appositional phrase, we have re- in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, trying to understand what that meant. Now, if redemption focuses on the payment of a price with the emphasis on releasing us from payment, then forgiveness also has that idea. We looked at the various verses showing that forgiveness means the cancellation of a debt. So these ideas are very close. And in an appositional phrase, what we have is a second phrase attached to uh, a, a sentence, for example, George Washington, the first president of the United States, the appositional phrase is usually emphasizing one out of all the many different attributes of an individual. If you were talking about George Washington as a military leader, then you would say George Washington, the commander of the Continental Army. If you were talking about George Washington in terms of some of his accomplishments as a plantation owner, then you would say uh, George Washington, uh, the plantation owner, something like that. So the appositional phrase is picking out one attribute of many to focus our attention on the topic at hand. And so when we look at redemption, the forgiveness of sins, that phrase, the redemption of, of the forgiveness of sins is focusing on that aspect of the cancellation of the debt, the cancellation of the sin debt. And we looked at passages in Colossians chapter 2 that express that in a little more detail. These words for forgive, uh, afiemi, which means to cancel or to remit or to release or pardon, and the other word, charizomai, emphasize Two different things. Afiemi emphasizes the cancellation of the debt, and charizomai, from the noun charis, meaning grace, emphasizes the attitude underlying the forgiveness. So we looked at Colossians 2, 12 to 14. This is a fourth point in the review. And the cancellation of the debt, which occurred objectively and historically when Christ was crucified on the cross. That forgiveness is a forgiveness of the penalty 
of spiritual death as it is directed towards the justice of God. It's very close to the idea of propitiation. Propitiation means that God's justice and righteousness have to be satisfied. So when the penalty is paid, they're satisfied, propitiated, and therefore therefore we have uh, forgiveness of sin objectively, the sin penalty. And that is made clear, as I pointed out last week in Colossians 2.12, he made us alive together with him, because he forgave you all trespasses. That had already happened. Because he had canceled it when he took the the certificate of debt and nailed it to the cross. So this verse tells us that something happened, some transaction occurred at the cross in A.D. 33 that canceled our sin, but it doesn't change us. That comes only when we trust in Christ. And then I looked at the four types of forgiveness that are mentioned in the Bible. The first is the one we just talked about. That is a forgiveness that's directed toward God, wherein the justice of God cancels the debt of sin. And this is for all. And so that is a forensic or a legal payment, a legal forgiveness. The second category that we covered was the positional forgiveness, When we trust in Christ, that is applied to us, and we are forgiven, and in Christ we are positionally forgiven. We are cleansed positionally. We can never lose that salvation. The third category of forgiveness we find in the Bible, we talked about also last time, experiential forgiveness in 1 John 1, 9. When we sin, it disrupts that rapport we have with God. That rapport that we have with God, we talk about enjoying our fellowship with God. And when we sin, that is disrupted. We're not kicked out of the family. We're just, sort, as it were, sent to our room. We have a time out spiritually. The way to recover from that is to confess sin. Instantly, we're forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And then, on the basis of that, understanding what Christ did for us, we can forgive one another relationally. We are to forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. That's the standard God wants us to be Christ-like. We are to be conformed to his image, and that is the basis for that. Then we came to the last part of the verse, that this is all according to a standard, according to a standard of the riches of his grace. Now, last time I just briefly covered this, but the word translated riches is the Greek word plutos, Now, plutos, an underlined singular, it is a neuter noun, and it is singular. Is the word riches singular or plural? That's an easy question. It's plural. Now, the problem with translating it riches, now this may not have occurred to to you, uh, may not occur to many people, but it implies different categories of riches. There's only one category. That's grace. And and a better word for it is the word wealth. Wealth is singular. It carefully translates a singular noun. It is the wealth of his grace, which is going to 
relate to the verb that we see in the very, very next verse. In verse 8, it says, which, that refers to his grace, which he made to abound. We'll get there in a minute. That is a terribly difficult verb to translate and concept to translate into English. It's just awkward, uh, which he made to abound. So there's this abundant grace. That's what's going on here. It's the wealth of his grace is a phrase that emphasizes the abundance, the superabundance of that grace, which is how it's clarified in the next verse. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, we have this same imagery uh, related to wealth and poverty used to describe what happened at the cross. There, Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that's that wealth, though he was rich, yet for our, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The word that is translated rich there is a cognate for the word that we're seeing in Ephesians chapter uh, 1, 7, the, the wealth that is Christ. It relates to his, his wealth. Now, when we look at the meaning of the English word wealth as opposed to riches, wealth talks about an abundance or a superabundance of some something valuable, okay? It is. It could refer to financial things. It could refer to material things. It could refer to an education. But wealth relates to an abundance or a superabundance of resources. And so the emphasis here is God's grace has provided us with a superabundance of resources to handle life. See, this is what is the theme of this section, as we saw back in verse uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Those spiritual blessings provide us with the resources we need to face all the issues of life. Whatever problems you may have, Whatever problems you might face, whether they're health problems, whether they're financial problems, whether they're relationship problems, work problems, whatever it may be, God gives us the resources that we need, and he does that through his word. This is a theme that I pound over and over again, that God's word tells us what we have in Christ, and we're to learn those things and then apply them, use them, in our in our life this idea related to the wealth of god the wealth of his glory which is talking about his essence we've talked about the term glory which emphasizes the importance of god the centrality of god to our life and it came to be a a term that was used as a synonym for his essence, the totality of his essence. So in a few verses, when we get to Ephesians 1.18, we'll read the eyes of your understanding, having been enlightened. It's a perfect tense, which indicates they were enlightened in the past with the results that go on. That, that indicates that, that at salvation our eyes are opened spiritually. Our eyes have been enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling? So as a result of having our eyes open, we have a confident expectation of our future destiny, 
with the Lord in heaven. What is the, and it's, and you use a King James or New King James, it's translated riches, but I've retranslated it. What is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? So there it is talking about all of the abundant possessions that we have as those who are in Christ. Philippians 4.19, in a verse that is tangential to what we're talking about, what God has supplied us with that is more than enough to handle any situation. And my God shall supply all your need according to his wealth in glory by Christ Jesus. And then in Colossians 1.27, to them God will to make known what are the wealth of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Now, what is this mystery? We'll get to that in the next verse, probably before we finish this morning. That mystery is the previously unrevealed teaching of God that in this church age something new would happen and Jew and Gentile would be united together in the body of Christ, the distinctiveness of the church age and the church age believer, because we have this wealth of provision by God in Christ. Again and again, Paul hammers home this theme that we need to exploit the grace of God, the provision of God, everything that he's given us in Christ. And so... We have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sin. It's canceled. Sin isn't the issue. Sin just weighs so many people down. They think that there's so many things that they have done that nobody can forgive me. I can't forgive myself. Whether they were a victim, many times victims blame themselves for things that have happened in the past. They're loaded down with guilt. They're loaded down with shame. They're loaded down with all kinds of of sinful emotions, and the Scripture says, but we have had those sins forgiven, the slates wiped clean, and every time you feel guilt, emotional guilt, there's a difference. Legal guilt is when I've done something and I've violated a standard, I'm guilty. So emotional guilt is when we just keep dredging it up in our mind and we keep thinking that I'm, I just can't get past this, I can't get over it, it hinders me, I'm just, just uh, I, I'm, in, I'm in shackles because of whatever it is that has gone on in the past. But what Scripture says is the redemption of Christ has set us free. God forgives us, cleanses us so that we can go forward and put the past in the past. And as Paul says, uh, pressing on to the high calling of Christ. And so we have this redemption, we have forgiveness, we live, need to live on the basis of that and believe it and go forward. And it's all according to the wealth of his grace. Then we come to the expansion of this idea in verse 8. Verse 8 says, it says, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and Prudence. So it begins with this relative pronoun which, which refers specifically to grace. So in the previous verse, we have the wealth of his grace. Now he, Paul expands on that which, that is this wealth of grace 
he made to abound toward us. So it's not just sitting in heaven, but that it has been given to us. That's the idea there. It is this, this Greek verb parasuo, which means to abound, to superabound. The NASB translates it to lavish. I spent a good bit of time looking through uh, thesauruses or thesauri, uh, synonym finders, all kinds of things to find a, a uh, different, uh, a better synonym for the verb to abound. Really doesn't exist. Uh, but you get the idea. God has superabounded us is what it literally says. He has given us a superabundance of resources. Sometimes when we use the word the sufficiency of God's grace, sufficient means it's enough. But God really gives us more than enough. He gives us beyond our imagination in terms of the resources. Whatever, whatever can happen, whatever the situation is, everybody is born spiritually dead. Everybody has a sin nature, and your sin nature was so active before you were cognizant of it between the ages of one and four that you made a lot of stupid decisions as an infant that set the course of a lot of your patterns and habits and different things like that. But And we all did. Some are better than others, some are worse than others, but we all do that because the sin nature enslaved us and dominated us and led us astray. What Scripture says is that the grace of God gives us everything we need in order to deal with that nasty sin nature. Paul says because of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, as described in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6, that we have been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, that sin may no longer reign over us, no longer dominate us. And so we have an option. You may not realize it experientially. A lot of people say, well, I just don't feel free. But Scripture says you are. You can choose to not yield to your sin nature to not be angry, to not lose your temper, to not give in to various lust patterns. Whatever the problem may be, God has provided the resources for that, and he made it abundant to us, more than enough, more than sufficient. And he did it, and here we have a phrase following with all wisdom and prudence. Now, the wisdom and prudence, prudence really isn't a good term for it, uh, old English word, uh, but it does communicate the idea of clear judgment, and I think that is what the emphasis is. The wisdom and prudence here is not governing what God did. It's governing what he gave us. He gives us this grace with wisdom and prudence on our behalf so that we can use use this grace that's what it's really focusing on, focusing on, and the background for this is understanding that it's this is related to God's revelation. If we look at the next verse, it says, "...having made known to us the mystery of his will." Making known, as we'll see in just a minute, relates to revelation. That verb often describes what God has revealed to us. So what God reveals to us in his grace gives us wisdom and prudence. The word for wisdom is the word 
Sophia in the Greek, but it translates over almost 250 times in the Old Testament. Not quite, excuse me, I misread. It uh, Over 140 times in the Old Testament, it translates the word chokhmah, which is a word translated wisdom. We've studied this quite a bit. We've studied it in Proverbs that chokhmah has the idea of skill. It's what a craftsman does. He is skillful with his tools. He's skillful in what he is making. And so it applies to life, to live life skillfully. And so that's what wisdom, it's not the Greek idea of abstract intellectual uh, capability. It's the idea of being able to take information and knowledge and turn it into something that where you're able to produce something of value and something of, of, of beauty. Wisdom has to do with insight into the way things are so that you can create something of, of value. So it relates to insight into the Word of God and its application in our lives. The second word, the word at the bottom, phronesis, is often given, the definition for that is often given as wisdom. These two terms are very close to one another, but they have a slightly different uh, emphasis so that the first word emphasizes the skill and the second is the application in terms of discretion and uh, discernment in application. So this relates to the fact that God gives us this grace so that we can then apply the word in skill and discretion in our lives. In verse 9 he says, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. I just want to look at that first part, having made known to us the mystery of his will. The word translated make known is the Greek word norizo, which means to make something known, to reveal something. This is a term, the Greek word is used many times in the Old Testament in the Septuagint translation to translate the word uh, yada, the Hebrew word, which means to know, to translate that so that people can uh, or have something revealed to them. People have God's word revealed to them. For example, in Psalm 103.7, he, referring to God, made known his ways to Moses. He revealed his ways to Moses. How did he do that? He did it through the revelation of the Torah, the, tent, the uh, Mosaic law, but also all of the Pentateuch. In Ezekiel 20, verse 11, God says, I gave them my statutes and informed. There's that word yada. It's translated with norizo. I gave them my statutes and revealed to them my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. Observing them is wisdom and it is discernment. And Daniel, Daniel uses this quite a bit. Uh, to you, O God of my fathers, he says in Daniel 2.23, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me. That is, you have revealed something to me. This is when he's interpreting the Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We have the norizo used in Romans 16, 25, and 26 as the closing benediction in 
Romans, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to what? The revelation of the mystery. See, that's where we're headed, is you'll see that what is revealed is often connected to something called the mystery, previously unrevealed information. Romans 16.26, but now, notice this revelation of the ministry of this mystery is now revealed, now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. In Ephesians, it's used quite a few times. Ephesians 3, 3 and 5, how that by revelation he made known to me, what? The mystery. As I have briefly written already, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And so we see in Ephesians 1, 9 that part of this superabundance of God's grace is to reveal to us new information that has never been revealed before. And what we'll come back to next time is to see what this mystery is, what it consists of, and how that should radically transform our lives when we get to the core of the church age spiritual life. We'll get there next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this morning, to be reminded of the superabundance of your grace toward us, all that you have made available to us. You have given us more than we could ask or think. It is our real possession in Christ, a part of our positional truth. Father, we are thankful that you have given us so much. And, Father, we pray that we might be diligent in reading, studying your word, learning about this, that we might exploit what you have already given us, that you might be glorified, and that we might live the kind of life that you would desire us to live. Our Father, we pray for anyone who may be listening today who has never clearly understood the good news about Jesus Christ, that all that is necessary is to trust in him as Savior. It's not about church involvement or church uh, membership. It's not about doing good works. It's not about uh, improving society. It is simply about trusting in the work of Christ on the cross to give us new life, new life because we're born spiritually dead, and to give us righteousness because we are born corrupt and we are without righteousness. We are Our righteousness is as filthy rags. All that is necessary is to simply believe, to trust, to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. And instantly, we realize that forgiveness in our experience. We are cleansed of sin positionally. We are adopted into your royal family. We are justified. And we have eternal life that can never be taken from us. Pray that that will be clear to anyone listening today. And, Father, we pray for us that we might not take this new life lightly, but that we might continue to exploit it, to grow, to develop, to mature, that you might be glorified in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.